Welcome to Season 7, Episode 5 of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Leslie Watts and Kim Kessler. Before we begin, for anyone who's new here to the show, Leslie and I have started a side project that we call the Unpodcast, or UP, where we take various storytelling principles that we've been studying here on the roundtable and we apply them to my current novel, Immortal. It's an Unpodcast because it's available only to subscribers of our mailing lists. So, If learning how to put these principles into action is of interest to you, you can subscribe at valeriefrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. This week, I'm looking at marriage story in order to study a story's three-act structure. This 2019 film was written and directed by Noah Baumbach. As always, this is an adult conversation, and it's entirely likely (laughs) that you're going to hear some adult words. All right, so let me give you a quick summary of the beginning, middle, and end of the story in the beginning hook. Nicole and Charlie Barber, who live in New York City, are in the process of separating and have decided to split amicably without the help of lawyers. But when Nicole gets a job in L.A., she moves there with their son, Henry. One of the producers on Nicole's new show gives her the name of a divorce attorney and recommends she contact her. Nicole has to decide whether to use the attorney or not. Using an attorney would help her protect her assets and custody of Henry, but would make her continued relationship with Charlie as Henry's father even more difficult. She decides to hire the lawyer. In the middle build, Nicole serves Charlie with divorce papers, which forces Charlie to hire his own lawyer. The divorce proceedings get ugly. And when the court says it will send a social worker to observe both parents with Henry, they decide to try and work things out between them. Their attempt at a rational discussion quickly dissolves into a heartbreaking argument. And in the end, their relationship and their situation is worse than it was before. A really quick side note here. There are many, many beautifully crafted scenes in this film, and I think the fight scene between Nicole and Charlie at the end of the middle build is going to go down in storytelling history as one of the greatest. All right, the social worker observes Charlie and Henry and seems unimpressed, to say the least. The knife trick that Charlie performs goes horribly wrong, and the social worker departs in horror, and Charlie ends up on the kitchen floor bleeding profusely. It is truly an all is lost moment there. In the ending payoff, Charlie gives Nicole what she wants in the divorce and returns to New York City a broken man. Meanwhile, Nicole discovers that her lawyer changed the balance of custody from 50-50 to 55-45, which is not what she wanted. When Charlie reads what Nicole had written about him prior to, to their divorce, this is the opening voiceover of the film, he realizes that Nicole did and does love him. When Nicole learns that Charlie has taken a job at UCLA to be closer to Henry, she becomes more flexible in the custody arrangement. Okie dokie, I'm calling the genre here the global genre, a love story marriage subgenre, but there are strong society undertones, and I'll talk about that in a minute. 
And in terms of internal genres, for Charlie, I'm saying it's worldview disillusionment. And for Nicole, a status sentimental. One thing that I think is interesting, Valerie, about this story is how similar yet different it is from Mrs. Doubtfire, which we discussed last season. The two stories deal with a similar situation, a couple navigating the end of marriage when there are kids involved, but the genre, style, point of view, and narrative device create very different stories. Oh, I agree with you. The these two films couldn't be more different, even though, like you said, they're kind of playing in the same ballpark here. The beginning hook of Mrs. Doubtfire leads us to believe that we are going to get something like Marriage Story. But honestly, I think Mrs. Doubtfire sort of takes a, a right turn in the middle build and it shifts over to a performance story, complete with that massive core event, uh, which is the big dinner scene at the end. It works structurally as a performance because the beginning hook also includes the performance conventions and obligatory scenes, and it turns on the global value for performance and all that good stuff. And given that they've cast Robin Williams there, it's not a massive shock that it would be performance, but with strong, um, with a strong family story underneath there. Okay, let's take a look now at uh, Marriage Story. I'm studying the beginnings, middles, and ends of stories this season especially in light of Sean's new method for breaking down the middle build. But before I jump into that, I want to touch on a couple of other topics because Marriage Story is such an expertly crafted film. I think it would be a shame if we didn't at least give a nod to some of the other great things that are going on here. The film opens with a massive voiceover. Now, voiceovers can be a little bit like chewing tinfoil. They're used a lot and are often completely unnecessary. And one example is the Shawshank Redemption. The voiceover there is famous, or maybe it's infamous. <laughs> but when we studied that film, I noticed that it's also completely redundant. Everything that Morgan Freeman is saying, we can see dramatized on the screen, so we don't need him to tell us. Now, I admit I grumble a lot about voiceovers, and cliffhangers too, for that matter. And I want to just take a minute here now to refine my perspective. Voiceovers and cliffhangers are simply tools in the writer's toolbox. In and of themselves, they're neither good nor bad. What we've got to do as writers is understand what each of these tools in our toolbox does. What do they do well? What don't they do so well? That way we'll know which one that we need to use to shape the story we want to tell. Marriage Story opens with two voiceovers and they work brilliantly. This film is about two people who love each other, but who can no longer live together. The primary antagonist here is society, represented by the lawyers, the judge, the social worker, Nicole's family, and even the actors in the theater company. Through the voiceover, Baumbach immediately created empathy for both Nicole and Charlie, and empathy for both of these characters is essential. Without it, the film won't work quite as well. It'll still work, but it'll miss a layer or two that is just so delicious. I said that society is the primary villain, and at the most macro level, it is. However, if we narrow our focus a bit and look at the story through the hero's journey lens, we also see Nicole as an antagonist. But Marriage Story is filled with shapeshifters. So even though Nicole can be viewed as 
the antagonist, at any given moment, she's also the protagonist. This film has so many layers to it. I mean, just so many. It's truly a stunning piece of writing. If you're writing a, a marriage love story, this is definitely got to be on your list of masterpieces. It's like a kaleidoscope. If you shift your view just a bit, this whole story changes. This is a marriage love story. There's no doubt about that. But as we've said many times here on the podcast, there can be elements of a number of genres within one story. Here, the society genre is so strong that if Charlie weren't such a complex character, we could make a case for a society women's global genre or society domestic for that matter. Charlie might be selfish and myopic where Nicole's feelings are concerned, but he's not a tyrant. There's never any doubt that he loves his wife and son. Yes, Nicole accuses him of gaslighting her, but that's during the big fight scene where they're both saying things that they don't really mean or believe. We know Charlie is a good guy. Now, he's not perfect, not by any stretch, but he is a good man. Likewise, we know Nicole is a good woman. Now, she isn't perfect either, but she is a good woman. That's part of the beauty of this story. He is not a tyrant, and she is not a bitch. They are brokenhearted people in an impossible situation. Okay, so now let's take a look at the structure of the acts for a glimpse at how Baumbach pulled this off. I think the beginning hook and ending payoff are fairly straightforward in terms of their function. So I want to dive right into the middle build. I've given a lot of detail about Sean's new approach to the middle build in past episodes. So if you want more information than what I'm about to give you here, you can go back to the beginning of season seven or read action story, the primal genre, which is by Sean Coyne. The first part of the middle build, or MB1, is the calm before the storm. The protagonist has crossed into the extraordinary world armed with only the beliefs, skills, tools, and knowledge that he brought with him from the ordinary world. The middle build belongs to the antagonist because the extraordinary world is the antagonist's home turf. So, whereas the antagonist is right at home, the protagonist is a fish out of water and is trying to navigate the strange new environment the best way he can. This literally is the case in Marriage Story, which is why, at the macro view, we can see Charlie as the protagonist and Nicole as the antagonist. The ordinary world is very clearly established in the beginning hook as New York City. The extraordinary world, then, is Los Angeles, and it's where Nicole is from. It's where her family lives. She literally has home court advantage. As the middle build begins, the inciting incident of MB1, Charlie crosses the threshold of Nicole's family home. Now, I don't want to say the word literally again, but he literally does cross the threshold <laughs> of Nicole's family home. It's really cool. We see him behaving as he always does. We see his code 1.0, as Sean calls it, in action. In the past, when he's gone to Jima's house, he was greeted warmly. Jima loves him. Cassie loves him. He's welcome. So this is part of the belief structure that he's brought with him from the ordinary world. He goes in there thinking that he will be welcome. In the extraordinary world, though, Nicole's family can't talk to him anymore, and he can't stay at Jima's house. From this point forward, everything Charlie thought was true turns out to be untrue. The world does not work the way he thought it did. 
by the end of the story, he's completely disillusioned and it's almost too much to bear. The turning point of MB1 is when the antagonist targets the protagonist. Now, this happens during the mediation scene when Nicole's lawyer raises the issue of residency. Over the course of the scene, Charlie realizes that in the eyes of the court, they are not a New York family. They're an L.A. family. This means that unless he moves to L.A., he can't be an active part of his son's life anymore. The crisis then is, will Charlie try to fight this opinion of the residency or will he give in? In the climax, Charlie chooses to defy the antagonist, and so he gets a new lawyer, one that will fight dirty. It's played by uh, Ray Liotta, which is really good. The climax of NB1 is where the shadow rises. It's when the antagonist actively asserts his power. As Sean puts it, it's, quote, a monstrous execution of force that the protagonist is not equipped to handle, end quote. Well, we certainly see this in court when Nicole's lawyer, who is acting on behalf of the societal antagonist and Nicole as antagonist, goes after Charlie with both barrels. The protagonist is not equipped to handle the antagonist's power and responds in a way that the antagonist is not expecting. In Marriage Story, this is when Charlie's lawyer turns the tables and attacks Nicole. Now, why am I talking about the lawyers here rather than Charlie and Nicole? It's because Charlie and Nicole have lost their voices at this point in the story. The lawyers are speaking for them. And so, momentarily, it's the lawyers that fill the roles of protagonist and antagonist. Everyone is a shapeshifter here. And remember, the archetypical roles are roles. They're not characters. In the resolution of Middle Build 1, this is also the midpoint shift, which is also called the midpoint climax or the point of no return. The court declares them an L.A. family, at least temporarily, and appoints a social worker to observe both Nicole and Charlie with Henry. The second part of the Middle Build, or MB2, is the chaos phase. The protagonist has no idea what's going on. He's got no strategy for coping with what the world is throwing at him. When the protagonist is in chaos, the entire story and all of the characters in it are also in chaos. The inciting incident of Middle Bill 2 is an unexplained event that both the protagonist and antagonist need to deal with, and neither of them is fully equipped. That's really important. In Marriage Story, this is the amazing fight scene between Nicole and Charlie that I mentioned at the top. By the end of the scene, Charlie is destroyed. He is curled up in the fetal position, clinging to Nicole. Nicole, as the antagonist, finishes the scene the stronger of the two. She's still standing. She's not crying anymore. And she's the one who gives comfort. She doesn't need to receive it. The turning point of Middle Bill 2 is the protagonist's all-is-lost moment. This is when the social worker observes Charlie and Henry. Now, there's a sequence of scenes here that ends with Charlie lying on his kitchen floor bleeding. Oh, this is definitely his all-is-lost moment. He knows the social worker will not file a report that's in his favor. He knows he's going to lose his son. The crisis of Middle Bill 2 is the global crisis of the whole story. And this is when the protagonist, knowing that he won't get what he wants, 
starts to question the meaning of life. He tries to figure out what's he supposed to do now? This thing that he's been going after for the whole story is gone. So he's sort of at loose ends and what's he supposed to do? In Marriage Story, we see Charlie back in New York City and he is completely and utterly lost. He has no words to articulate how he's feeling and so he sings them. And this is the scene where Charlie comes upon the theater actors in the bar and he impromptu stands up and sings. And well, you need your Kleenex handy boy for this movie. Typically in the resolution of middle bill two, we see the protagonist preparing to fight the antagonist. Now, unfortunately, Charlie, he's just got no fight left in him. He cannot go up against Nicole again. He just can't. If he wants to be with Henry, he's got to leave New York and move to LA. And that's exactly what he ends up doing. Now, the ending payoff of this film is really short, and that's probably just as well, because by the time we get to this point, we're all emotionally exhausted. The characters are, the viewers are, everybody is. We hope that Charlie has returned to LA in time to rebuild his relationship with his son. Although it looks like he's got like a hell of a lot of work to do. Nicole's new boyfriend, which by the by is played by Newfoundlander Mark O'Brien, has stepped into the father figure role. He's, he's, playing with Henry when, and Jima for that matter, when uh, Charlie walks in the house. And this is the real heartbreaker here. As we see during the final scene, Charlie has, again, literally <laughs> and metaphorically become a ghost. They're all out trick-or-treating. Charlie is a ghost wandering behind them. Ugh. This is just the tip of the iceberg for this film. The more you watch it, the more you're going to discover. For now, though, I'm going to hand it over to Kim, who will look at the core event. Kim. Awesome. Thanks, Valerie. I am studying core events this season, which is the big moment of change that pays off a story, and it is specific for each genre because it represents a peak moment when the core life values that represent that core human need are the most at stake meaning the protagonist has the most to gain and the most to lose. This tension and shift in the life values evokes the core emotion, and that is the ultimate payoff of reader expectations that have been set up and built up over the course of the story. Now, these elements are known as the four core framework, and they represent the heart of each genre. The human need, represented by those specific life values that evoke the specific core emotion that culminate in that core event. Also, the core event is the answer to the question that's raised in the premise in the beginning hook. Okay, so what's the question raised by today's genre? So the primal question for a love genre in general is, will the lovers commit to each other? In an obsession subplot, the answer is usually no, because the lovers don't mature beyond desire. In a courtship subplot, the answer is typically yes, because they do mature and see each other differently or mature beyond desire or whatever it takes for them to reach commitment. But in the case of a marriage plot, the lovers have already committed, so the primal question takes on a different quality, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. But regardless of the subgenre, the four core framework of love is still the same. The human needs tank is love and connection. The core values are love and hate. They're expressed in the core event of the proof of love moment that evokes the core emotion of romance. 
But in a marriage plot, the core emotion has a slightly different quality. It's about something deeper than the butterfly feelings of romance. It's deep, intimate love and connection. Here's what Sean has to say on love marriage stories. The marriage story concerns a committed relationship that certainly had early stages of passion and is now at a crossroads. This story takes love into realistic realms and may have a negative inciting incident such as betrayal. So we know that worldview maturation is baked into the love genre, but we often see morality internal genres paired with love marriage stories as well, which is what I'm saying is the internal genre today. And I think that seeing this show up often makes a lot of sense. Lovers must mature in order to enter into a genuine committed relationship, but in order to sustain a committed relationship and advance to genuine intimacy, lovers will be held to a higher standard and challenged in new ways. So the primal question for morality story, will the protagonist sacrifice their own want and put the needs of another above their own, or will they choose selfishness? The four core framework of morality is the human needs tank here is self-transcendence. The core life values are selfishness and altruism that are expressed through the core event of the big choice, when the protagonist must choose between sacrifice or selfishness. And that evokes a core emotion of either satisfaction or contempt, depending on their choice. Okay, so this leads us to how does today's story execute these elements in the core event? So for today's film, I'm going to discuss two scenes. Now, something I've noticed as I study core events is that there are often two scenes that feel like two halves that together make up the core event. I mean, maybe it's just me, but that's really how it's feeling. It's easier for me to see this cause and effect relationship, a sort of setup and payoff within the ending payoff, than it is for me to see one narrow, precise moment. Maybe it's that the precise core event moment only seems to make sense in the context of this other moment, whether it precedes it or follows it. Okay, so here's the first of the two scenes. There's the scene between Nicole and Nora. We're at Nicole's house. She's having a fun party of some kind. And Nora tells Nicole that things are almost done with Charlie and the divorce. Because Charlie gave up on New York, Nicole gets LA. And because Nicole gave up on the MacArthur grant, Charlie isn't asking for any of her TV show money. But then Nora tells Nicole that when Charlie is in LA, the visitation will be split 55-45. So Nicole will get one more day with Henry every two weeks. But Nicole didn't want that. But Nora changed it at the last minute so that Charlie couldn't brag about getting 50-50. Nora tells Nicole to enjoy the win. Okay, so then the next scene is the scene with Charlie on Halloween. So Charlie arrives at Gma's house and everyone gets ready to dress up and go trick-or-treating together. Charlie tells Nicole he took a residency at UCLA and is going to be directing two plays, so he'll be in LA for a while. Nicole can see the effort and is proud of him. In the other room, Henry finds the letter that Nicole wrote about Charlie that she refused to read during their appointment with the mediator at the opening of the film. Charlie sits with Henry and listens to him read and then reads the rest aloud, tearing up at the end when Nicole said that she would always love him even though it doesn't make sense anymore. Nicole is standing in the doorway listening with tears in her eyes too. Then the family goes trick-or-treating together, and when it's time to say goodbye, Nicole sees how tired Henry is and asks Charlie if he wants to take him home rather than making Henry come to dinner. Charlie says, but it's your night. But Nicole insists, and Charlie carries Henry to the car. On the way, Nicole stops Charlie and ties his shoe for him. 
Okay, so the scene on Halloween feels like the true core event. But Nicole's proof of love about giving Charlie the extra night with Henry is set up by the scene with Nora, as though Nora's announcement of the arrangement is a turning point for Nicole. How is she going to use the power that she has? This prompts the primal questions of love, marriage, and morality. Will lovers who no longer want to be in a committed relationship continue to love each other or will they devolve into hatred? And when given the chance to behave selfishly, will they? But what we see is the core events of proof of love and the big choice of selflessness by both parties. When Charlie takes a residency in LA to be closer to Henry, we feel the same core emotion as Nicole. It's not satisfaction in a I win, you lose kind of way, but proud of him for being the man and the father that she loves. And when Nicole lets Charlie finish the letter that she wrote, have an extra night with Henry, and then even something as simple as tying his shoe, we feel a deeper sense of romance, not one of sweet giddiness, but this weighty ache that means so much more. So all of this really feels like it hits home with the big meta why of love marriage stories and specifically divorce stories. How can we still love each other well when we no longer want to be in a romantic relationship? The answer, by finding a different version of commitment and intimacy that is separate from desire, one where we give our gift of love to one another selflessly. Thank you, Kim. Leslie. I suspect you're going to talk about point of view and narrative device. Am I right? Yes, you are, because I am continuing my study of point of view and narrative device. So if genre is what your story is about, point of view and narrative device combined is the way you deliver it to the reader or viewer, as in our story today. That's why I firmly believe that your point of view and narrative device choice is the most important decision you make after your global genre. So point of view and narrative device give writers useful constraints to make decisions that support the story you want to tell. I explore how to choose your point of view in a bite-sized episode. You can find links to that and my articles in the show notes. And I go further in my story grid beat on point of view coming out later this year. All right, so I start my analysis by looking at what I call the opportunity presented by the premise. Now, the premise is a concise statement about a specific character or characters in a setting with a problem. Nicole and Charlie are two flawed married partners living in New York City who care about and love their son, but who can no longer get along as a couple. In general, marriage stories create the opportunity to portray stereotypes, casting one partner as the villain and one as the victim. But they also present the opportunity to reveal the deeper truth that, in most relationships, no one is a villain or victim all of the time. Here, the creators chose the latter path, which offers a more useful controlling idea for the audience and an opportunity for real catharsis. What's more, the specificity of the problems that these characters face in this story makes the story universal. We can all learn a little something as we go. 
So although we're talking about marriage, you could write a similar story about any complex relationship, for example, in a professional or political context. And the central question of the divorce case about whether Henry, Nicole, and Charlie are a New York or L.A. family could be any ill-defined problem loaded with emotional baggage. These problems are not solvable using black and white thinking. To have any chance of coming out on the other side requires what Sean calls the worldview shift of breaking our cognitive frame. We just aren't capable of seeing a workable solution while we're mired in the big emotions and old thinking. So to me, the essence and the genius of this story is that it shows how the story we tell ourselves about what's happening is often the real problem. Now, that's just another way of saying we need to break our cognitive frame. The stories we tell ourselves get in the way of seeing options and realizing that the way we try to meet our needs may be in conflict, but our needs themselves seldom are. So to take advantage of the opportunity presented by the premise, the creators must show both partners at their best and worst, struggling to change the stories they tell about themselves and their situation. One way to show that struggle is to give us a view of what the characters are thinking and what they actually do. This is, of course, difficult to do in a film. So how do the creators here comp accomplish this? They pay attention to point of view and narrative device. Okay, so what's the point of view? Point of view is tricky to identify in films without an overt narrative situation. But what do the scenes of marriage story reflect? The scenes suggest what Norman Friedman calls neutral omniscience. We have a godlike narrating presence, but they don't speak directly to the audience. As Gustave Flaubert explains, the author should be felt everywhere and visible nowhere. They reveal the point of the story through the events they choose to show and how they frame them. The neutral omniscient narrator has access to the words, actions, sensations, and thoughts of all the characters to tell the story, but that doesn't mean they show everything or that the events and information they reveal is random. Which brings me to boundaries. In the show notes, you can find more explanation and examples of the range of this point of view. But now I want to talk about why I think marriage story is an example of neutral omniscience. What evidence in the film itself suggests this point of view? The film shows us the actions and words, but also implied sensations and thoughts of, the, of multiple characters within the same scenes. So words and actions are easy. But we also observe sensations, for example, when Nicole is unsteady on the stairs from drinking, or when Charlie passes out because he cut himself during the evaluator's visit. 
Okay, so those are sensations we get by implication. What about thoughts? Well, the film opens with Nicole and Charlie's divorce mediation assignments, though we don't know that's what we're overhearing. Along with the voiceover for each, we see flashes of memories that serve as evidence of the propositions in their notes. The context could be love letters, a couple's therapy assignment, an interview. We don't know, but we make assumptions that are then upset when the camera or the narrating entity pulls back to reveal Nicole and Charlie meeting with their divorce mediator. Incidentally, another example of this effect, that is when we when what we assume turns out to be incorrect, happens when we think Nicole is being interviewed by the evaluator, but it turns out to be a practice session with her attorney. Now, the execution of this point of view choice simulates the revelation that something we really believe is true is actually not, or that something we really believe is true is, but it's not the whole truth. The scene level point of view choice creates this effect, and the audience experiences a little of what Nicole and Charlie are going through. So whether an audience member chiefly sympathizes with Nicole or Charlie in the beginning, by the end, we experience the deeper truth of their revelations. So that's the point of view. What's the narrative device? We have an anonymous narrator, so I'm working based on the impression that the scenes give me and the point of view. The omniscient narrator reminds me of someone like Nicole, who might write and direct a film after fully metabolizing the divorce to help people who face conflict, particularly partners considering or going through divorce, and that is to help them change the stories they tell about their situation so they can focus on what's important. In this case, Nicole's controlling idea might be divorcing partners can recover connection and find intimacy through co-parenting when they reframe the stories they tell about their circumstances. So this is not the only message that the audience might come away with, but it's the global controlling idea or theme of the story as I see it. Now, as always, when there's no obvious narrator, my analysis is pretty subjective. Reasonable minds could certainly disagree with my conclusion. The point is, it's really useful to use our writer's imagination to think about what the creators might have been trying to do. That helps us consider the wide range of possibilities for our own stories, as well as the techniques that we can use to create those effects. The final part of my analysis is how well does it work? In other words, how well do the point of view and narrative device choices fulfill the opportunities presented by the premise? Probably using the word genius earlier gives away how I feel about this. Honestly, 
I say the opportunities presented by the premise, but I might also talk about how the point of view and narrative device set up and deliver the moment of catharsis at the end. We feel hope that we too can change the story that we tell ourselves and work out the stickiest of problems, no matter how big or complex. Thanks, Leslie. That was great. All right. We like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So what have we learned this week? Kim? So this week, I feel like my advice would be when executing your core event, look for the setup scene that raises that primary question of the genre and theme again. Having this question resurface intentionally in the ending payoff will cue the life values at stake and set up your audience to feel that core emotion when the core event moment happens and the life values actually shift. This one-two punch will generate maximum core emotion and satisfaction for your audience. And for me, point of view and narrative device are technical choices that create some of the best magic that exists in the world. It can transmit knowledge through the controlling idea and catharsis through the core emotion from inside the mind of the writer to the minds of the readers. If your story isn't doing this, Take another look at your point of view and narrative device. It's worth your time and attention so that you can fulfill your story's promise. There are so many takeaways from this film for me, but I think the key one is that as writers, we've really got to learn what all these storytelling tools are and how they work. Only by doing that can we make informed decisions and choices about which of the tools that we need to use to help us shape the story we want to tell. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Sue Copil on the Story Grid Guild. Sue asked, how do any of the editors use the Story Grid as a plotting tool? Kim, you want to take a crack at this one? You bet. Thanks so much, Sue. So if plot is what happens in your story, it's the sequence of events that creates the genre arc, then plotting is figuring out what needs to happen. And fun fact, every writer is a plotter because every story has a plot. It's simply, do you plot best from outside the story with an outline or inside the story, line by line and scene by scene? And know that this isn't a moral choice, okay? It comes down to how your brain is wired to process information and make decisions. So whether you outline or pants, you plot. Okay, so while Sean designed the story grid tools to assess an existing draft to determine if it works or not, and then, of course, if it doesn't, identify why so that we can fix it, the tools are tied directly to fundamental storytelling principles so we can use them to generate a draft as well. But Sean likes to say, if the story is working, you don't need the tools. So when it comes to plotting, if you're flowing in your process, don't stop. Just follow your story intuition as far as it takes you. And if you find that you get stuck in the what happens next, then you can look at your story grid tools for clues to find your best fit answer. Okay, so personally, I am an outliner. So here's a gist of my process and how I use StoryGrid tools to plot. 
Now, I always start with what I know about the story. This could be characters, settings, events, thematic concepts. I write this down in a sort of summary synopsis-like way until I've exhausted everything that's in my head. Now, my goal is to have a global scene list before I draft. So based on what I know, I look at what I'm missing. So do I have a beginning? Do I have a middle? Do I have an ending? Now, I usually start out with a really clear beginning hook, and then I have a vague sort of ending and a, you know, WTF is going to happen in the middle. So that's where I apply the story grid tools to help me figure out what needs to happen in those parts of the stories. So from taking the Ground Your Craft course and from editing the Four Core Fiction Anthology, my understanding of core events has really leveled up. So based on my beginning hook, I can find which genre's four core framework best fits the heart of my story, and that gives me the core event and the ending payoff that I'm building toward. From here, I expand to my editor six core questions, and I use my genres, conventions, and obligatory scenes, and my character's object of desire to map out the middle, as well as looking at archetypal story structure like the hero's journey or the virgin's promise for that linear progression of events. I ask myself questions like, what's my protagonist's all-is-lost moment? And what's that major shift of the story that's going to happen at the midpoint where my character goes from the 1.0 to 2.0 version of themselves? Now, as I build my global scene list to the point that feels complete enough for me to draft, I am consciously thinking about my point of view and narrative device and how that affects narrative drive. And a personal shout out and thank you to Leslie and Valerie for that because they've really spearheaded both of those concepts for me. So for me, as someone who tends to get too linear um, and plots pretty much every moment, having this point of view narrative device and narrative drive in my head helps me identify the scenes and events that I can omit from my story, that I can either leave out completely or simply reference that happens offstage, you know, in another scene. So for me, plotting boils down to two fundamental questions. What do I need to know to keep writing? And what does my reader need to know to keep reading? I hope that's a useful introduction for you, Sue. Thank you so much for your question. And if you have a question about the three-act structure or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Another fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Leslie and Kim. I enjoy this every week. We hope our discussion into Marriage Story has given you a better grasp of how to tackle the middle build of your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. As a reminder, if you're interested in the unpodcast that Leslie and I do, you can subscribe at valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle or writership.com. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. All right, join us next week when Leslie will look at point of view and narrative device in the 1975 novel Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow and the 1981 film adaptation directed by Milos Forman. Why not give it a read or viewing during the week and follow along with us. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.